0: Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. It's your host Michael here again. This is the podcast all about humans both people living today and humans who have lived in the past. Today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome this guest. Our guest is biological anthropologist Adam Van Arsdale. Adam, are you there? Yes. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. Hi, Adam. And and thank you for being on the show. Where are you calling in from? And and can you give us what your official job is at the moment? So I am calling in from Wellesley, Massachusetts,
1: which is about 13 miles outside of Boston in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, I am... Uh, the Class of 1966 uh, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Wellesley College and Chair of the Anthropology Department here. This is my 12th year at Wellesley, Hmm. having uh, previously taught for two years at the University of Michigan and having been a graduate student at Michigan for five years prior to that.
0: What does the uh, the class of 1966 mean? <laughs>
1: so that means that in 1991, at the 25th reunion of the class of 1966, they got together and pooled a gift to help support uh, faculty and teaching at Wellesley, mm-hmm. and that gift became the class of 1966 associate professor, oh. which is a rotating chair that I think helps pay for part of my salary mm-hmm. and gives me a small uh, pool of additional research funds to use while I while I have that title. Oh, okay. Cool. So it's very nice. Thank you, Class of 1966.
0: Yeah. And you know, how are you these days generally? How have things been since term started again after the summer holidays? Well, uh, fortunately, I am actually on sabbatical at the moment.
1: Um, so I'm not teaching at the moment. I am still department chair. So um, there's been more administrative work than maybe I would prefer. But mm-hmm. that's also part of the job, actually, in, in my case, a fairly large part of the job. Um, so other than that, it's, it's going quite well. So I still actually have been meeting with students pretty regularly, um, but also doing a lot of writing and research related to my own work.
0: Excellent. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, I think I told you over email, like, I think I intended for, for us to talk maybe in like the first 10 episodes at some point, but um, many things in life like got away from me at least. Um, but now we're here. Also, for me. Yeah. <laughs> but now we're here uh, with you for episode 80. What is a, a typical work week like for you? Um, maybe when you're not, not on sabbatical as an anthropologist at Wellesley college.
1: So, um, a typical work for like for me, so that my, my standard teaching load at Wellesley is two classes a semester, and those will have two or three meetings a week each. So that's usually two or three days of the week. And on teaching days, that's pretty much all that I do. Uh, prepare for lectures and classes, um, meet with students, um, do the regular email kind of work. Yeah. Um, so that's two to three days a week. And I rotate through. A, I'm the only biological anthropologist at Wellesley. So I teach uh, a sort of core curriculum in biological anthropology that includes introductory courses, um, forensic anthropology and human osteology, an introduction to human evolution, some anthropological genetics, and then some more upper level and elective courses that I rotate through on a sort of three-year basis, really. Um, So on those days that I'm not teaching, um, I'm doing my own research, uh, which might involve uh, undergraduate students and might involve working with colleagues and collaborators at other institutions. Um, I'm also have a fair amount of administrative leadership positions sort of more Mm -hmm. broadly within anthropology so i'm currently the section chair for the biological anthropology section of the american anthropological association um getting ready for our upcoming annual meetings in vancouver actually in a couple weeks yeah um so i have and i'm also a co-associate editor for american anthropologist for biological anthropology Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a fair amount of administrative work that i do beyond the work that i do here on campus at wellesley as well that Definitely, uh, I I like it because it keeps every week interesting and different It involves me in a lot of different kinds of tasks. Uh, But it's definitely a big part of my job and not Mm -hmm. something that I necessarily anticipated or understood when I was in graduate school, for example.
0: So uh, I think I think I'd love to ask you later about um, how you like time manage all of these uh, different responsibilities. Um, But I guess um, so I'd like to concentrate maybe on your research and fieldwork first. I I know that you are a paleoanthropologist. Which means that you are, you know, very familiar with our six or, or seven million year long story of human evolution. Would you say that there is a a chunk of human history, a region around the world that you are the most familiar with and you know perhaps ask the most questions about?
1: Definitely. So in terms of my paleoanthropological research, what really got me started, especially as a, a grad student going back to my first year of graduate school, was the origin of the genus HOMO or the beginnings of the genus HOMO. So this is a time period going back, let's say, one and a half to two and a half million years ago. Um, I had the the real privilege, my first year of graduate school, to begin doing field work at the site of uh, Dimenisi in the Republic of Georgia, mm-hmm. which is... One of, if not the, it's probably the earliest well dated site that has substantial fossil evidence outside of the continent of Africa, um, dated to about 1.81 to 1.75 million years of age. Mm -hmm. Um, That really got me interested in this question of this time period of the, the beginning of the genus Homo, we see a lot of changes that are moving hominins in the direction of us today. Increase in body size, increase in brain size, the movement to a post skeleton. So what our skeleton looks like from the neck down, that brings it very much in line with the way that we look today and different from the australopithecines that came earlier. Mm-hmm. So understanding what are the evolutionary processes that are structuring this change and particularly in the context, the other thing we see at that is the beginnings of hominin populations expanding into a whole different set of ecologies and environments outside of Africa than we think that they were evolving in in the, say, two to three or four million years prior to that within Africa, Mm -hmm. at least where we have evidence of them from within Africa. Um, So since that time... So that's where I I started as a graduate student, really, was at Demonisi and beginnings of the genus Homo and what dispersal out of Africa might mean going back to about two million years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've stuck with um, these questions of evolution of humans in the Pleistocene. So what's happening over the last 2 million years? What are the patterns and processes that help us understand the fossil record, uh, the archaeological record, and increasingly the genetic record for this time period? Mm -hmm. Uh, I've continued to work in parts of Eurasia. So I haven't been in Georgia for about six or seven years now, um, but I've... Tagged along with some colleagues in Armenia for a field season from, with Dan Adler, who's an archaeologist at the University of Connecticut. And more recently, I've been doing work in Kazakhstan with a colleague from Colorado State University, Micah Glantz. Um, and that's a project that's ongoing now in Kazakhstan.
0: Wow. Um, do you remember what the experience was like when you first went to Dmanisi?
1: I I, I remember it extremely well. Oh. Dmanisi is a place that is very... Um, Close to me, it means it means a lot to me personally. I think this is one of the challenges of anthropological fieldwork more broadly, is that, and not just people on the biological or archaeological side, but across the whole discipline, is that you really do develop relationships with the places that you do sustained field work, mm-hmm. the people, the institutions, and the places themselves. That, like all relationships, grow more complex with time, and in some ways more challenging. Um, but I remember the very first so. Flights into Georgia, and I think this is probably still the case, international flights into Georgia tend to arrive in the middle of the night, so 2, 3 (laughs) Uh a.m. And so I arrived bleary-eyed as like a 22-year-old kind of naive and ignorant graduate student and got picked up by some Georgian colleagues, taken to an apartment in Tbilisi to sort of spend the night, uh, woke up at eight in the morning, I think kind of still bleary eyed. And there were two other early graduate students who were staying in this apartment. In addition to our host, um, Holly Dunsworth, who's now at the university of Rhode Island and Herman Ponser, who's now at Duke university, um, who actually have remained. And they were like, they knew each other. They had a previous connection from Penn state Mm -hmm. and they were like, who is this guy? Who's just shown up here. Um, but they've both remained very close friends and colleagues over the years. So I remember, The first arrival to Dimenisi very well. And then the trip out of Tbilisi into Dimenisi. Dimenisi is about 75 kilometers southwest of Tbilisi, the capital in Georgia. And you go out of the city, kind of over a sort of foothill mountain range into a dry foothill region of South Central Georgia, and then into this kind of lush valley that's Dimenisi. And it's spectacularly gorgeous. Dimenisi is on this promontory over this confluence of these two rivers. Um, The site itself is situated within the remains of a medieval citadel complex. So you have these medieval walls and this still-occupied 8th century church So it's just a magical, magical and amazing setting. And I was
0: hooked from the start (laughs) and absolutely blown away by it. Yeah. In those first few times that you went out there, what were you, what were you tasked with doing? So the
1: first field season I was there was the summer of 2002 and we had a very large international group. Um, The project itself had kind of just expanded in terms of its international footprint. Mm -hmm. It was being led by, um, the National Museum in Georgia, as well as a couple PIs who I think at the time they had NSF funding um, from who were U.S. based. But there was also a Spanish team that would come through, a French team that would come through. Um, It was this real international mix of lots of researchers, graduate students. Some were there for, you know, one week or two weeks doing specialized work. There was kind of a cohort of graduate students who were just doing basic field labor with the Georgian team um, for, I think I was there for probably eight weeks that first summer, which was the bulk of the field season. Mm-hmm. Um, so just doing day-to-day excavations. But for me, it was sort of a paleoanthropological boot camp in a lot of ways. Um, to be surrounded, I mean, I, I, I remained this way, but at the time I was definitely full in the throes of just being in love with paleoanthropology and wanting to talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And in graduate school, there were a couple other paleoanthropologists around, but not, you know, not 10 others who were happy to talk about questions of modern human origins and homo erectus and all these kinds of questions on like a 24-7 basis. So it was a really, I mean, I, I look back on that, so much of that with real just excitement and uh, nostalgia in Mm -hmm. some ways.
0: So uh, in a lot of like uh, science communication, a lot of anthropologists and archaeologists get asked this question of like, what is your favorite discovery? And I'd like to ask you that too. Like in your time doing fieldwork in Dmanisi, is there something you remember? Um, A day that you remember where everyone was really excited about finding out some information?
1: Fortunately, so Dmanisi is a pretty extraordinary site. Um, It's produced a ton of really incredibly well-preserved hominid material in addition to other kinds of uh, fossil animals and archaeological evidence. So fortunately, we had actually a lot of those days, both when I was a graduate student. Um, but I think I actually have to move the time forward a little bit. So after I'd started at Wellesley, um, I helped co-start a field school at C in 2010 and 2011 with Ani Velashvili. Mm-hmm. Who's a Georgian paleoanthropologist and dental anthropologist, and uh, those first those two years that I helped co-direct the field school, um, especially the first year, we had a tremendous amount of success in terms of recovering hominin fossils, which you know is, is a fairly rare event. And um, uh, watching our students, so we had a couple graduate students as well as a couple undergraduate students who were doing a lot of excavation the, that first year, and watching them have the opportunity to actually be the principal discoverers mm-hmm. of hominin fossils, and seeing their excitement was probably my, my all time highlight. So, <laughs> wow. mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and like it's, it's supreme, like pride, and I don't know, like joy in sharing what you do with with them.
1: It, definitely, I mean, there there were so many great moments. I think the other moment I'd have to go back to was this was 2006, which was sort of the 15th anniversary of. Um, the beginnings of formal excavations at mm-hmm. um and we kind of organized an impromptu 15th anniversary celebration. So, along with uh, one of our Georgian colleagues, Gocha Kaladze, who is the site director there, he and I went to a nearby village to basically get food and. We got directed from the market to someone's house, a little village, uh, you know, a little village, kind of country house. And the owner of this house took us into his cellar, basically. And lo and behold, he had his own Um, a cask of homemade wine there Mm -hmm. that we got to like taste in the cellar of this little village in this fairly rural community in south central georgia and you know buy that along with fresh produce and food and bring it back and just that whole experience and the intimacy of um of what it means to be at a site for a long time really that's that's the other highlight that comes to my mind Mm
0: -hmm. and so do you do you miss Dumanisi, do you think about going back to Georgia every now and again? Um, I, I certainly miss
1: the uh, many of the people there and the connections and the place itself and certainly the science. Um, the politics of the fieldwork there got a little bit complicated for me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. There, one of the things in describing long term fieldwork as a relationship, um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is that those relationships get more complicated. You become, you know, when I arrived there as a first year student, everything was just amazing. You know, it was like everything was touched with gold in a way, at least in my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. But as it goes on, you realize um, that not everything is is so great, and there's positives and negatives. Um, not everyone is who you would like them to be, including yourself at times. Mm-hmm. Um, the politics of doing international collaborative work can be challenging um, in terms of how we understand our own positionality with respect to power with respect to our role in um, moving the science forward, our role in developing the science and not just the the knowledge we're producing, but the institutions that we're part of and we're strengthening through that work hopefully. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of reasons that became more complicated than I would like it to have been. Um, it was also the case that, um, basically i i I took a year off from field work when i was coming up and preparing for um i forget now if it was for tenure or reappointment i think it was for i well i don't remember which one it was and i guess it was for a reappointment in my case Mm -hmm. so the my my initial contract review basically here at wellesley and when i left that summer um the field school sort of taken over by other folks who work at the site and i some i also realized that uh I was probably better positioned to do begin to branch out and do some of my own work in other places. Um, so for that reason, I, I haven't been back. I don't have any plans to go back right now. Um, there are things that would make it complicated to go back,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but uh, it is a, a, an absolutely extraordinary site with so much, so much more work that could be done there than that in some cases is being done there. Mm-hmm. And so really phenomenal colleagues, um, just a wonderful place to work in a lot, a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to know how did you start to get involved in projects that are in Kazakhstan?
1: So, the Kazakhstan stuff goes back to my first field season there was 2013. And the preparation for that had begun maybe a year, year and a half earlier. Um, again, as someone who had done work in Georgia and was interested in increasingly sort of broad regional questions, especially these questions of, one of the questions brought up by Dimenisi is, why did hominins end up there? Mm-hmm. Um, here we're talking about, you know, 1.8 million years ago, in neither the archaeological record nor the fossil record. Is there any real evidence of population pressure, um, so populations being demographically strained by having too many people and therefore needing to expand out, which is one of the reasons why we see dispersal amongst mammals is when population becomes a pressure. Mm -hmm. So there's no evidence for that because we don't think there were that many people, really. So why they got there, how they got there, what constrained them from going elsewhere? You know, if they're at Dimenesi at 1.8 million years ago, where else might they be? And so that led me to sort of broader regional questions about what are the constraints on where and when hominins are where they are? Um, especially as we see sort of complex patterns of dispersal out of Africa, back into Africa, across Eurasia. And also at the same time, by 2010, we begin to get this really exciting ancient DNA evidence coming out of Central Asia Mm -hmm. in the Altai region of Siberian Russia, where we have ancient DNA from what we now refer to as Denisovans, Um, We also had, you know, Central Asia doesn't have a very extensive fossil record, but what is there, coupled with the ancient genetic record, is very interesting because we have a combination of Neanderthal fossils, things that kind of look like Neanderthals, but we're not really sure if they're Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. We have early modern humans in the context of ancient genetic data from the area, and we also have these Denisovans. So we have this really complex diversity of populations. And so it seemed, also given the fact that it's an area that hasn't had a huge history of fieldwork, it seemed like an interesting place to go and begin trying to fill in some of the gaps of where we've explored these questions. Mm-hmm. With The specific goal of trying to address some of these questions of what are the constraints and what are the factors governing where and when and how hominid populations are occupying The landscape. Yeah. So given that, I reached out to a colleague who I didn't know her that well at the time, but I knew her a little bit, um, Micah Glantz, who's at Colorado State University. And she'd done previous work in the area. Um, She'd worked in Uzbekistan for a while. Um, She'd had, I think, a a Fulbright Fellowship, which had taken her to Kazakhstan for a while. So she'd done some initial forays in Kazakhstan. And just things sort of lined up for us to do a, a, a a joint field season, a couple with a couple other folks as well um, that in that twenty thirteen season, which was sort of just a chance to see what things look like on the ground, get a sense of what the institutional landscape is, as well as visit some areas. Um, that first season, we went to a couple different places in south central Kazakhstan, and then a couple places, sort of more southeastern Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. um, near Almaty, um, which is the largest city in Kazakhstan, and then further into the southeast as well. Um, and we had a, a I think, a, a productive field season. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that's important in field work is discovering who you can work with and who you want to work with. And Micah is a great colleague, so I was happy with extending that. Um, it took us. Micah is also a department chair at Colorado State, Mm -hmm. so she also has a lot of administrative tasks. So it took us a while to get sort of back to things. But then after a couple of years, I got funded from uh, National Geographic to do some preliminary exploratory survey work um, to try and identify um, new Potential localities in that area, mm-hmm. um, specifically targeting a fairly small area of south central Kazakhstan. And so that's work that I started two summers ago. Um, I delayed a field season last summer because Kazakhstan just had its um, first uh, transition in executive power. Yeah. Um, and I was a little bit, I didn't have enough. Uh, experience within Kazakhstan to feel totally comfortable as to how that would play out on the ground. And I was in a position where I could delay the field season for a year. So I did. Um, And I'll be be going back in June for sort of the final season of this initial survey project. Cool. Um, pretty optimistic about our potential to, again begin to hopefully start filling in some yeah. gaps
0: when you get out there are you going in a large group altogether? Um, because this is preliminary or is it like a small team of you
1: pretty small group so that first year in 2013 it was a little bit bigger because it was a couple different groups kind of coming together um, so we were sort of a couple vehicle team so uh, even just sort of a large van um, last time when I was out there in 2017 um, I was meeting with some folks um uh, in uh, Astana um, formerly called Astana the capital and then Shimkent which is sort of where I was operating out of but then I did some sort of on-the-ground exploratory work on my own with uh, just a um, really an ecotourist guide in the area that I wanted to be in just to get a sense of uh, the basic logistics like what I what we needed to do in terms of water and housing food and transportation so before I was bringing a team with me I wanted to get a couple of those basic questions established yeah uh, when we go back this summer it'll still be a small group um, it's a very small grant that I have so uh, being able to be small and light is key so there'll be four or five of us this
0: summer there and uh, what what kinds of things are you um, assessing and, and you know What do you think that you would like to do further if uh, given the opportunity soon?
1: So the broad project is trying to there's sort of a, a series of goals that go from easy to obtain or easy to attain and harder to attain. So at the basic level, so we some of our previous work, um, this is work again with Micah Glantz and one of her former graduate students, Tyler Beaton, um, was really trying to create a biogeographic model for where we find archeological sites in this area and specifically uh-huh. ca- comparing The southern extent of this region, so this whole area is basically the western flank of the Himalayan Plateau. So there's a big mountain region that basically goes from the middle of Uzbekistan up through the southeastern flank of Kazakhstan, terminating in basically the Altai of southern Siberia, southwestern Siberia. Um, we've got a lot of archaeological evidence coming out of the Altai. Uh, work that's been led by Russian archaeologists for you know half a century. Um, there's a fair number of sites actually at the southern end of that extent in Uzbekistan. The middle is kind of an unknown. This area through Kazakhstan, which is why we're there. But uh-huh. the biogeographical model was especially looking at different zones of occupation in this area. So the most of Kazakhstan is kind of a big flat step. Um, so, big sort of the southwestern extent of the, the, the Russian steppe um, that extends into desert in a lot of parts of Kazakhstan today, but in the past might have been a little more of a, a, a richer, moister grassland. But comparing the mm-hmm. steppe to the mountains, and then this critical sort of foothill region in the middle. So one of our hypotheses for this area is that we've got evidence of fairly rich population diversity if we look at the fossil and archaeological and genetic records, particularly the genetic records in this area, despite the fact that we don't have great evidence of intense occupation. Some of that is we simply haven't done the fieldwork maybe to identify occupation areas, but some mm-hmm. of it might reflect the actual ecology of how populations are persisting in this environment. Um, And the notion, especially we're interested in the notion of, given that we think water is a primary constraint on hominids being able to occupy this area. A lot of this area is fairly dry today, even desert-like today. The Pleistocene, broadly speaking, is a time period when this area is getting drier, though there's cycles of it being drier and wetter. Um, So this step might have been occupiable at times and not occupiable the mountains would have been a little bit challenging simply because of extreme um weather and climate associated with the mountain environment but what the mountains always provided was water there was always Mm -hmm. glacial runoff associated with these mountains so the foothill regions which provide this ecological gradient between the steppe and the mountains would have provided both access to water and also seasonal resources that might have allowed populations to persist across these kind of extreme environments comparing the dry steppe um, to the high mountain regions. So that's sort of a long way of saying that one of our first goals is really being doing on the ground cataloging of what these steppe environments look like and what kind of resources they provide. So part of what I was Mm -hmm. doing uh, in that first season was identifying or or confirming basically the location of springs within this area. So summer springs, so where there's year-round water access, even when the steps are becoming very dry. Um, Thinking about how we might assess and model seasonal temperature variation um, with the idea that seasonality is probably a constricting factor on where and when hominins can occupy places or at least something that they need to adapt to and how they occupy a place mm-hmm. um, and also looking at elements um, so modeling things like view sheds um, so if we're thinking about for example middle paleolithic hominid populations utilizing these foothills as a landscape to occupy how might those actually connect with the steppic regions at their foot and one of the cool things right. about being on the ground is you can actually we were surveying an area that was been between about 5,000 and 7,500 feet in terms of the altitude but i could turn around and i had about a 80 kilometer view shed out onto the steppe so it was just a it was helpful to be on the ground to see how these things play out, to gather quantitative data mm-hmm. about some of these variables, to inform some of our models about how we might um, better understand the biogeography of
0: hominid populations in this area. Mm-hmm. And then using that, you might be able to like locate where it would be possible to do like archaeological surveying with uh, some sort of... <laughs> idea of where they could be
1: exactly so to have better models to identify where we should look um but one of the goals also is really to actually find one of the the challenges in interpreting specifically in kazakhstan the archaeological record is there are very few well stratified sites Mm -hmm. so most sites that exist are these deflated sites that don't have good chronologies um, that don't maybe have good associated dates with them so it's hard to, there's no real type site for beginning to really establish the chronology of archaeological industries mm-hmm. and styles within the area um, and thinking about, again, who, who is here when. Right. So one of the goals is also trying to identify stratified sites. Yeah. So one of the reasons I'm targeting the specific area I am is, one, there are areas where there are fairly substantial lust profiles. So lust is just the dust basically that gets dropped by prevailing winds and over time, uh, and in this region of the world in particular, can build up to huge depths. And those um, can provide actually a rich uh, glimpse into sort of larger regional scale climatic patterns and temporal patterns over time. Mm -hmm. Um, But also there's underlying limestone outcrops in this area um, that are potentially uh, potentially have karstic systems, so cave systems um, that caves are really nice environments for per- preserving evidence of hominin occupation, mm-hmm. uh, potentially fossils, certainly archaeological materials, and even just stratified geological sediments. Um,
0: so ultimate goal is really to identify right a place where there's potential for stratified sites mm-hmm. is this approach of uh, modeling something that is quite common in the paleoanthropology at the moment um and you know since you first began when you were a grad student how have you seen you know approaches and, and methods change in paleoanthropology when it comes to field work
1: i it's something i think that has a long history um it's definitely increased i think in its prevalence over the last two decades primarily driven by increasing use of remote sensing data so satellite data mm-hmm. uh, some of which was decommissioned satellite data from the 60s and 70s um, that allow for the development of these uh, geographical information system gis models uh, that allow us to more rigorously and quantitatively model these kinds of environments and these kinds of questions right and actually put them into a hypothesis testing framework mm-hmm. um it's something that as always i said been I think a tradition in paleoanthropology that's increased, but it also is also in tension, I would say with the tendency for paleoanthropology to be site and location focused the nature of the work, the nature of individual relationships, as I talked about sort of the beginning of this podcast, and even how we fund research tends to be focused on we know we have fossils in this place let's go to this place and so there's a there's a tension in that there's also a, a Drive, I would say, in paleoanthropology to being more narrowly focused, mm-hmm. and I think both both are totally valid, both are both are necessary, um, but I think that's how the the,
0: the two relate mm-hmm. to each other and what about in the like analysis of uh, any archaeological material that comes from from field work like do you think that the field has changed in any particular way in terms of analysis i'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm
1: less qualified on the archaeological side of things. I depend on colleagues and collaborators to do the intense archaeological mm-hmm. stuff. I can, I can identify a stone tool and identify what kind of stone it is. But in terms of doing the complex, holistic comparative analysis of industries and tool types, I definitely rely on people who have greater mm-hmm. expertise in that area. Um, I think... So, so I, I hesitate to comment too much on how it's changed as someone who's more on the periphery of that, right. but I do think we're on the cusp of some pretty substantial changes in how we use archaeological evidence, at least I would argue in favor of that. Primarily, I, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how we integrate ancient genetic data with fossil data with archaeological data. Mm-hmm. All of these data sources provide us with different kinds of information. So much of the narrative about human evolution that's changed over the last two decades has been driven in particular by ancient DNA, um, also by new fossils. Mm -hmm. Um, Ancient DNA largely coming out of Eurasia. Um, There's a big... Uh, Bias in ancient DNA, in terms of where ancient DNA is preserved, Uh, that's, I think, an important issue that we haven't fully grappled with in how we use those evidence. Um, In terms of new fossils, we think of things like uh, the fossils from Flores in Indonesia, um, the Homo naledi. Um, or Australopithecus sediba fossils coming out of South Africa, which are both sort of really surprising. I mean, all of those are very surprising Mm -hmm. and new and unexpected. Um, But I think as we've been driven by these new and exciting finds in paleoanthropology, how we leverage the use of archaeological data in our ancient past has, I think, been kind of left behind over the last two decades a little bit. And I think there's a need to refocus our efforts on theoretically thinking about how we can effectively integrate archaeological data into our paleoanthropological understandings of the past. Mm -hmm. The huge advantage that archaeological evidence provides, and again, as someone who's interested in these questions of why and where and when hominin populations are present in the past, is archaeological data far and away preserves better than any other kind of evidence Mm -hmm. we have available to us. Stones just persist in the environment a lot better than bones and a lot better than organic molecules like DNA. Um, So, however, what those stones don't give us any evidence of is ancestry or phylogenetic relationships. we oftentimes attribute archeological samples to a population or to a species or to a group of people and think that that gets passed on from generation to generation and acts as a kind of phylogenetic signal. But in actuality, I think we can say that archeological tools tell us nothing Mm -hmm. about the phylogenetic status of who made them. But because of the most well-preserved, Again, there's because so oftentimes we're driven by these phylogenetic questions. Who is this? How are they related to each other? Who are the Neanderthals? How do they relate to Denisovans? How come we as living Homo sapiens today have ancestry from both of them? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're driven by these questions that archaeology by itself doesn't address, but it's absolutely crucial for, I think, forming the foundational evidence for beginning to understand the patterns of demographic and ecological relationships which structure how evolution is acting on how many yeah. populations in the past.
0: And uh, so how, how do we uh, integrate them together? Like, I, I suppose that in your, you know, different responsibilities outside the college as well, this is where you're going to um, connect your ideas with those of uh, all of the people around the world working on similar questions, right? I think so.
1: I, I, I don't have a quick answer as to how exactly we effectively do that um, because it's difficult. I mean, one of the challenges is if we think about how we do graduate training, for example, of students in anthropology and paleoanthropology. So, well, to take it back even one step, you know, when we're doing fieldwork in paleoanthropology, we're typically part of a um, a multidiscipline collaborative team. It might be a geologist, archaeologist, taphonomist, uh, a paleo fossil person, other kinds of specialists who might be in the site. Um, So all our specialists oftentimes are there working side by side in the field, but our graduate training in paleoanthropology, paleoanthropology, not unsurprisingly, you know, specializes us into some niche of that. And there's the need to have broader conversations um, and to reimagine some of our training, I think, to value that more generalized approach. And... It's hard because as we move towards specialization, as we think about the different kinds of evidence we use today, for example, the rise of ancient DNA, understanding how ancient DNA work is done, the biochemistry of it, even the sort of population genetics and biomolecular realities of what ancient DNA evidence represents Mm -hmm. is pretty technical. And not, I mean, no one can be an expert in all of these areas. And so the, the technical distinctions... Um, can serve as barriers between dialogue and integration of lines of evidence across different subdisciplines, mm-hmm. And there's a need, I, I think, to, to, again, more substantially address that. Uh, I think if you look over the last decade, as narratives of human evolution based primarily on ancient DNA have begun to occupy more and more of this space... You've seen, for example, a rise between or a tension between archaeologists and geneticists, yeah. I think, in this area, where, you know, people who do doing genetics work sort of say, oh, look at this great new evidence that we found in favor of this event. And archaeologists are like, wait a second, we've been talking about this for 60 years. Or no, your interpretation doesn't make any sense because we have this 60 year record of archaeological data that totally runs counter to that explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of what will happen in the next decade, in addition to new and surprising discoveries, is beginning to think about how we can have those conversations more effectively and those collaborations yeah. more
0: effectively. Something I find quite interesting as well, especially like now that I do this podcast, is that, you know, I, I find myself having to, well, I don't have to, I guess, but I, I choose to keep up with a lot of information that comes out. And it seems like every day there's a new story about fossils, about DNA, something about the past environments? How do you stay on top of it? Or perhaps, I don't know, maybe filter what, what the most essential information is for your own research and teaching? It's very difficult.
1: Um, I mean, I, I obviously, I, I, I don't stay on top of everything. And I do have to filter based on what's of interest to me. Mm-hmm. And that might change a little bit from week to week, month to month. In some ways, um, in some ways, I'm better position to think about these kinds of questions because I am at a small institution. As the only biological anthropologist at Wellesley, um, I do have to cover, to the extent that I can, the entire subfield. So there is professional incentive to stay on top of conversations across the different sub -sub sub-disciplines of biological anthropology. Uh If I was at a larger research one institution, There'd be more pressure and incentives for me to really excel in my specific niche in that environment. Um, So I'm in a bit of a privileged position in terms of having the luxury maybe to take a step back and look at some of the big pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say also just sort of personally and professionally, I've come to value the big picture perspective, not just on biological anthropology, but anthropology more broadly. Um, one of the reasons I've put efforts into involving myself, for example, with the American Anthropological Association, the AAA, um, is because I I do value those big tent aspects of anthropology. I, I I'm not even sure if I answered the question, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I I get that, um, and I think like even like in my own experience of uh, completing my PhD, you know, there are days where I feel like. specialist Uh, i'm I'm really trying to dig into my own data and i'm really obsessing over this one particular tooth in the mouth and what happens to it (laughs) but you know other days i'm a generalist and then i want to relate what i found in my phd to like broader narratives usually when i'm going to a conference that's that's the kind of conversations i'm having with other people who work in other contexts or are also asking those big questions and i'm trying to you know think about how my phd plays a role in the you know, larger investigations that are going on at the moment. So, yeah, I kind of understand that you have to kind of bounce between the two depending on what conversation you're having.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, you asked me at the beginning of this, sort of, what my typical work week is like. And if when I was a graduate student, say 90% of my typical work week might be specifically focused on paleoanthropology and not just sort of big picture paleoanthropology, but little picture, you know, early evolution of genus Homo paleoanthropology. Mm-hmm. Compared to right now, I would say probably 10% of my work week is specifically paleoanthropology. So there's Mm -hmm. a a, a complete inversion in where my efforts are focused. Um, Mm -hmm. Part of that is increasing administrative work and sort of other kinds of leadership work within the the discipline and within my department and institution. But some of that is also in order to feel like I can teach the subject to my students, being part of bigger conversations um, that extend beyond the narrow View of paleoanthropology, and Mm -hmm. as just an example, you know how my research has evolved over the last ten years is that there are aspects of my research that have come out of my teaching, that have come out of being part of broader dialogues within not just biological anthropology but anthropology as a whole. um, That I that I value on just an empirical basis, not just because they reflect the the work realities of my life.
0: You mentioned earlier that you know not all of your Administrative work was something that you could have anticipated when you were, um, you know, earlier on in your career. Um, were there mentors or were there people who were who were trying to to tell you about what the what the life was going to be like at this stage at the moment?
1: <laughs> Definitely. So I, I have to give a credit to my graduate advisor, Milford Wolfoff. Um So Milford um, was one of those advisors who he did Demands that his students always attend the business meeting at conferences you attend.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, whether it be the AAPA meetings or the AAA meetings or the paleoanthropology meetings or whatever meetings, he wants his students to be part of the business because he's definitely of the mind that, um, you know, getting a PhD, for example, in, in anthropology, being an expert in biological anthropology, part of that is taking an ownership of the discipline and a responsibility for the institutional structures of the discipline. And part of the sort of hidden curriculum, I think, of graduate training is that reality that you are becoming part of the infrastructure of the discipline and have a responsibility to be aware of that infrastructure and institutional structure and to be responsive to it and participatory in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely owe my advisor a huge amount of credit in that respect. And I think it's not surprising if you look at AAPA and AAA, you see a lot of... um, people who have been actually Milford students who have been in leadership positions in these organizations. Um, so I, I think that's, that's not too surprising. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say is that he always told us, so whenever we were grad students and complaining about how busy we were, how, how difficult life was, he'd always say, just wait until you're an assistant professor. <laughs> You'll never have less time
0: than when you're an assistant professor. <laughs> right. Which was, um, I would say, uh, pretty true in my case. <laughs> right. We're going to close the show soon. And we're just going to bounce around with some other quick questions. I know that one of your passions in our field is making, making all of our knowledge that we have about human variation and evolution more accessible to the public. Could you speak a little bit about the things that you've been doing to try and do that?
1: Yeah. So I'm a big, um, uh, you know, human evolution, as, as paleoanthropologists, you know, whenever we're talking about the importance of our work, we always say something. Um, you know, perfunctory about why what we're doing matters for living humans today, um, you know, why understanding the past is important for us today to sort of justify, I think, the work that we do. Mm-hmm. And I think as a discipline, we we do attend to that need um, in some cases more than others. Um, but I know I I think evolution is fun to think about and understand, but it has real consequences for how people understand and interpret the world around them. And I think... We sometimes get overly focused on talking to each other instead of talking to a broader audience. And I think there's been, again, over the last decade, I'd say more attention to our need to have broader conversations with diverse publics. Um, I've, ever since I started graduate school, uh, my oldest brother is a high school science teacher in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So I've Skyped into his high school classes, his you know, first year high school biology classes, AP biology class to talk about human evolution, to talk about the work that I do and how it operates and what kind of evidence I look at. Um, over the years, I've had kids. I've talked to preschool groups. And in that case, not so much talking, but showing and, and telling um, elementary school groups, middle school groups, high school groups. Um, retirement community groups. Uh, My father is actually a now retired Presbyterian minister. Um, My mother-in-law was also a Presbyterian minister. My grandfather was a minister. Um, So talking with diverse publics, including faith-based groups, um, just to begin to have those conversations and point out the ways in which um, we're so focused on presenting understandings of the world as binaries that are in opposition to one another, Mm -hmm. as opposed to um different ways of viewing the world that can operate simultaneously even if they're not fully reconciled with one another one of the reasons i like identifying with the broad umbrella of anthropology is that as a discipline anthropology itself has those tensions so i think it's well positioned to give us a platform for engaging with the public because even within anthropology we have people who find you know are are hostile to science and people who believe science is the only way we can produce real knowledge. Right. Um, So some of the things I've done, in addition to just having conversations, formal and informal with broad and diverse publics, I put together, this was, I guess, six years ago, uh, a MOOC, um, Massive Open Online Course in partnership with edX on human evolution. I ran it as a as a primary instructor three formal times, but it's still fully available um, for anyone who wants to access it. It's about 168 videos and represents about 85 hours of work for a student if you want to do the whole thing. Um, but it was tremendously fun and informative to put together. Um, it represented about 500 hours of work on my part. <laughs> um, but at last I checked, which was about two years ago, about 30,000 people had accessed at least half of the course. Amazing. Which is pretty cool. It was certainly way more than any of my publications have ever gathered. <laughs> right. Last year I was turning forty and um I decided to uh do something entirely new. Um I ran or trained for and ran the boston marathon raising funds for the boston museum of science in the process and to help support that effort put together a podcast called running for science science for running where i interviewed uh, 12 experts in the field so ranging from graduate students to associate professors um who all do work related to the evolution of human running in some capacity or another cool which was fantastically fun to put together because there are people who do work peripheral to my own work. So I'm not an expert in that area, but I know enough to sort of be an educated moderator. And it was just great fun putting that together with a real goal of producing something that's publicly focused. And again, if I look at the data from that podcast, it's been downloaded and accessed way more than any one of my publications, because it is geared towards a public audience. And it does tie in understandings of evolution with Mm -hmm. things that
0: matter more directly to people. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, I I actually haven't listened to it yet, but I I really want to. So I'm going to go download that.
1: The audio quality, I will warn you, is not as good as your podcast because (laughs) you are better at this than I am.
0: (laughs) Um, uh, So um, let me see. So have you always been interested in anthropology even before you went to college? So... The story I tell so when I, I went into my
1: undergraduate institution was Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, in the U.S. I went into Emory expecting to be an English and biology double major because I was really interested in evolution and biology, but I also loved novels in particular, um, and so I started off, you know, first year going down that tract. Um, I discovered pretty quickly that. Um, biology at Emory was largely focused on molecular and cellular biology, and that most of the students who were in my classes were pre-med focused, so wanted to become doctors. And for whatever reason, I I, I had no desire to become a doctor, um, but I I did stick with the English major. Um, but my first year, I also took as just a distribution requirement course, so an elective course, an um, in intro to cultural anthropology, and I loved the books that we read. I loved my teacher. Um, He got me involved in some of his work right away, which was uh, definitely important in my development. And uh, it turned out that Emory has a a track in anthropology, uh, a major that's anthropology and human biology, and it's a Bachelor of Science degree. So it allowed me to bring that evolutionary and biological desires I had to a subject of humans, which interested me a lot more than E. coli or yeast or um, Mm -hmm. the kinds of subjects that I probably would have focused on in biology. So it was the perfect marriage of my interests. Um, And Emory at the time didn't really have someone who was a straight paleoanthropologist, but I took a a seminar my junior year with Michelle Lample, who's more of a human biologist in terms of her research. She studies childhood growth and development. Mm -hmm. And it was a fantastic seminar on basically modern human origins. And I was absolutely hooked. I did a senior thesis on... This is the sort of late 90s, uh, some of the population genetics arguments about whether or not there was a late Pleistocene human population bottleneck. Uh, So, again, I was already interested in questions of population and constraint and demographics. Um, And it went from there. So I I went straight from undergraduate to graduate school. So I -hmm. I didn't have better ideas. So I just went straight to graduate school. And
0: it's been a pretty smooth track since... Mm -hmm. Like, uh, so, uh, what would you say would be like your upcoming plans in the future?
1: Um, so coming up, so research wise, um, I've got a bunch of sort of writing projects that I'm working on, the most notable one being a book project looking at uh, actually how we consume and use genomic information and how our construction of the genome really runs on multiple contradictory tracks. So we understand it as sort of a molecular biological thing, but it turns out the genome gets constructed through legal frameworks and social frameworks simultaneously, and that these aren't really consistent with one another and aren't even consistent with the basic metaphors we use to understand the genome. So that's fun because it's the first time I've really engaged with a book project, but that's a really exciting track of what I'm currently doing. Heading back to the field this June to Kazakhstan, uh, doing some primary field work. Um, Excited about a session we have organized for the upcoming AAPA meetings this coming spring in Los Angeles. Uh, Together with Robin Nelson, who's an anthropologist at Santa Clara University, we've organized a symposium Focusing on this question of what is a population, and we're bringing together people from across the subfields of biological anthropology, so primatology, human biology, genetics, paleo, um, osteoarchaeology, Mm -hmm. uh, bioarchaeology. Um, So that I'm really excited about that because again, I'm 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 theoretically really interested in this question of populations right now. Yeah. What are they? How do we use that term and that uh, framework within our research? How do we convey it to the public? Um, and all of the implications of the complex mess of ways in which we do that. Amazing. So that's what I'm up to right now. And I'm back to teaching in the spring. So I'll be teaching the intro to biological anthropology and forensic anthropology in the spring. So that's also coming up. And then finally, I'm waiting on a couple grants related to work that I've been doing in terms of developing a virtual reality platform for engaging with uh, evidence of human evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a project I've done with a colleague here at Wellesley, Jordan Tynes, and some students. Uh, But it's basically a fully immersive uh, virtual reality lab environment where you can play around, explore, and study anything that you can digitize. So any any fossil or archaeological material that can be scanned, you can put into this environment, and you can create some really uh, preliminary evidence suggests effective but very engaging um, areas and possibilities for people, including the public, to explore these kinds of materials. Amazing! Um, so there's a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty excited about the future. Yeah.
0: What would you say is like the most challenging part of all of this uh, work that you're doing? Um,
1: one of it is. One of the challenges just recognizing you had talked about the beginning about how we have the time to juggle these different things, mm-hmm. recognizing that it's okay for me to work at my own pace, that we have so much pressure on us to constantly produce, 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 produce. Um, I am someone who has tenure now and there's tremendous privilege in that. And so having that privilege to, to put my efforts where and when I want them to be in an effective manner. And the part of that is recognizing that um, it's important that I put effort into some of these administrative things that aren't necessarily directly benefiting me, but are doing more to develop the discipline of anthropology uh-huh. and promoting other voices aside from my own, um, promulgating the the work of colleagues. Um, so ha- having the privilege of recognizing that I can go at my own pace.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and direct my efforts accordingly.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you, um, you know, unwind after like a long day of work?
1: Well, I've got I've got three kids, a dog, so mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of the evenings these days, and they range in age from 17 to six. So it involves going through college application essays for my daughter who's applying for colleges right now. She's 17. Mm-hmm. Um, helping my my freshman in high school son study math and physics and uh, listening to my first grader begin to read uh, and walking the dog Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I'm also a big sports fan so I like to follow lots of sports especially uh, (laughs) baseball basketball and in Olympic sports like track and field and swimming and Mm -hmm. stuff
0: do you think uh, that being a father has uh, changed your your anthropology in any way I think if you
1: talk to most biological anthropologists who have had kids I think the process of watching your kids develop definitely gets you thinking about development from an evolutionary perspective in a different way. Mm -hmm. So there is a direct, I think theoretical tie in there in terms of how we think about development. Um, but also it forces you to value things in different kinds of ways. Um, and and just on sort of a day to day basis in terms of how you schedule your life and how you structure your life. Um, and it can be a real challenge. I think for a lot of people, um, it's probably one of the most stressful aspects of it. Um, but but it definitely forces you to make decisions about how you're going to value things and how you're going to uh, put your time into things. Mm-hmm. These days on the weekends and apologies in advance to everyone who I'm behind on emailing. <laughs> I pretty much don't email people on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I see the emails as they come in, but um, that's time that's involved with you know going to soccer games and. You know, going to play dates and birthday parties and uh, all, all kinds of other things that I
0: value and that help make me a healthier person. Yeah, I, I do that too. I, I avoid, uh, you know, correspondence in the evenings and weekends and holidays because it's important to protect that time.
1: And I think it, just being able to acknowledge that that's okay too. Mm-hmm. I, one of the administrative functions that I've served in the past couple of years is I've I was elected to the Committee on Faculty Appointments here at Wellesley, which is the um, committee that makes tenure judgments and decisions. And so we're the ones who evaluate people for reappointment, for tenure promotion. It's obviously a very important task. It's one that requires a lot of work. But one of the things that I've tried to bring into that in my own role is making sure that I have a voice that's speaking out for these things. That no, our expectation for junior faculty isn't that they work. 24-7. It's okay if they have interest and actually good if they have interest that go beyond their research specialty, that go beyond their teaching. It's good if they separate some barriers between themselves and their students and, you know, make time for themselves. And that as we evaluate them, it's important that we be aware
0: of those issues and those priorities and those values in our own judgment Mm -hmm. so uh if people have any questions for you adam about this interview can they find you somewhere online
1: you can find me online all the time basically (laughs) (laughs)
0: um
1: so uh i you can find me on twitter uh which is probably the place you can most easily find me these days i think my twitter handle is apv2600 um Engage viewers might recognize that as a reference to a, a mandible from the side of Demonisi, Demonisi 2600, which is my favorite fossil. Um, <laughs> I also have a blog um, called The Pleistocene Scene. It's blogs.wellesley.edu backslash Van Arsdale. Um, and it's also pretty easy to track down my email address, my Wellesley email address. Um, those are the main places you'll find me online.
0: Amazing. And do you have a hashtag for this episode? Ooh. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Something that we've talked about, something funny, something that you're passionate about. Ooh. uh, Hashtag busy. Hashtag busy, (laughs) busy, busy anthro, busy anthro. Okay. That's a good one. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, listeners, if you want to indicate to me and Adam that you have heard the whole thing, then go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit and use the hashtag busy anthro the podcast. You can find new episodes on arkineth.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Thank you once again to all the patrons who help keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you. Adam, thank you so much for being on today's show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And uh, did you have any closing messages, anything that you feel we haven't covered?
1: I just want to again point out how remarkable it is that you have already done 80 of these episodes. <laughs> <It's> a tremendous <laughs> yeah. service to the discipline in terms of promoting the broad work that anthropologists and archaeologists are engaged in. Oh.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> I well, I, I wouldn't do it if no one was listening. Uh, and I'm, I'm just really grateful that people are listening. Well, as am I. As, <laughs> okay. I'm happy to be a listener too. Oh, okay. So listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>